Rathbone's Look Forward series with Andrea Catherwood. I'm Andrea Catherwood and welcome to the latest episode of the Rathbone's Look Forward series. I'm talking to some of the great thinkers, journalists and writers of our time, focusing on the future of our changing world. Today, we're focusing on the future of justice with businesswoman, campaigner and author Gina Miller. Her latest book, Rise, Life Lessons in Speaking Out, Standing Tall and Leading the Way, charts an extraordinary life of challenges faced and traumas overcome and argues that we all have a duty to give back to society and defend what is right. Gina, it is a pleasure to have you here with me. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm looking forward to our chat. Gina, you're a campaigner. You've been a campaigner all your life. So I have to begin by asking you about your reaction to the extraordinary momentum that we're now seeing for change through Black Lives Matter. It is extraordinary what we're seeing, but it's not something that happened overnight or just because of COVID or a moment in time. It's a culmination of decades of campaigning by so many people, because we find in all campaigns, be it for as far back as votes for women or the ending of apartheid, or even in the country I grew up in, in what was British Guiana, the fight for independence back in the 60s. And yes, Me Too movement and Black Lives Matter. It's built on years of campaigners passing the baton from one generation to the other. And then that consciousness growing and then the moment popping up in history and this pandemic has actually given us the opportunity in so many ways, not just Black Lives Matter, but actually to re-examine the way we operate as a society and how our structures are highlighting the inequalities and the injustices that we know have been there. And there are many people who've been shouting about this. You know, Black Lives Matter, it's seven years ago that organization was formed. But I think it is the moments and the opportunities when they come along. And this pandemic is creating the environment for change. And is this really the moment? I suppose many people are worried that, as you say, this Black Lives Matter has been going on for seven years. Very often there, there does seem to be movement, but then it retrenches. Do you think that we are really at a tipping point now where actually there will be fundamental, long-lasting change? I think there we have to be very careful because when things are done in haste and in the heat of the moment and driven by emotion, not the practical structural thinking and the, the strategy that's required to enable long-term effective change, then there is a danger that we do harm rather than good. So I think we have to be very cautious, A, of those who might be hijacking the movement for whatever their particular aims may be. And secondly, the fact that it might be too quick and too soon. I mean, I've just one example. I think we have to be very careful about the statues, bringing down statues, because to my mind, you know, out of sight is out of mind. If you take them away, do we then move on and forget that past? Is it not better to perhaps, in my view, think about putting up plots of truth that say the good and the bad that individuals did and actually use them as a platform for education, where we what we do is we then start the ripple effect of educational change, where we look at all parts of our society and we bring to the fore the truth and educate people about the past rather than dissipating and putting them away, if you like. 
And we'll talk a lot more about uh, your current campaigns and uh, the current pandemic later. But first, I'd like to take you back a little bit and ask you about where your drive came from. In your book, you say that your childhood taught you to stand up for what you believe is right, no matter what the personal cost. So tell us about that childhood. How did that come about? I count myself as being incredibly fortunate to have grown up at the knees of my father, who was somebody who believed in not just the rule of law, but really getting up every day and doing the best you can for anyone you saw that was hurting. He was a great man. Had to, he had a, an intellect and a rigour of thought that was not just phenomenal in his legal profession, in that uh, he, he rose to become Attorney General back in Guyana, but he had a, a heart of, literally, as they say, a heart of gold. He would take time to speak to anybody. Uh, he was a very methodical gentleman, and he spent time with me as a young child. He would come home and talk to me about his day at work, the cases he had come across, the people who were suffering from miscarriages of justice, what was wrong with our politics, the fact that we were in living through a dictatorship, and how wrong that was. So he took the time to talk to me and to teach me. And I think that's something that's incredibly invaluable for every child, is to not just have the love of a parent, but actually for them to teach you. And I also had a mother who I, I'd say was an eco-warrior before the term was even invented, I think. Her lessons to me were quite different. They were that you should never take anything for granted. It could all be gone tomorrow. So you're very careful. However successful you are, you, know, you are careful with what you have. And you are also careful with what you do when it comes to the environment, to plants. She was a, a horticulturalist. She, she taught me very different lessons, but I think both my parents taught me about responsibility. Gina, you then left Guyana when you were 11 to go to boarding school in Eastbourne. Why did your parents send you to the UK? My father was uh, very much an activist at the time. He wasn't a leader of the a new opposition party, but he was very instrumental in setting up a political party and an action against our then dictator. And the very charismatic leader, or the young man who was going to be leader, was killed in a car bomb. And my parents, my father found out that there were threats against our family, in particular my elder brother and I. So we were sent away to be safe, which is ironic when you roll it forward to my actions in the Supreme Court. But we were sent to be safe and also because my parents, as most parents from Commonwealth countries, thought that British education was the best in the world. And if and when they could afford to send us, they had planned to send us when we were in sort of sixth form, that sort of age. But uh, they made the decision at a very tender age to send us, which was a huge trauma for our family. You went to Eastbourne, which I'm imagining is one of the least diverse parts of the United <laughs> Kingdom, and you were a girl of colour in a British boarding school. How, how did that feel? What was it like for you to come from Guyana to this incredibly different situation? It was odd because obviously I'd grown up reading, you know, Dickens and Jane Austen and all those books, and I felt, as most Commonwealth, I felt British, you know, this was almost coming home and arriving and discovering that it was quite different. As you say, my parents chose Eastbourne because they wanted somewhere small and safe. And the boarding school they, they chose was one that was very, very much about care. And I have to say my experience in the school itself wasn't such a, a trauma because there were quite a few girls from different parts of the world, but obviously not many. There were a few. And uh, I think like all children, you pick on someone who's different. So I wouldn't call it racism, if you like. I think it was more 
fear of the unknown or not knowing someone like me who looked like me. But I was the only girl of colour in my dorm or my house. It did lead to some bullying, but I can't say that it was necessarily about my race. It was more about the fact I was a girl who was different. You know, there was also a German girl there who I remember had really long hair and plaits and she was teased for her accent. So the racism I encountered wasn't in the school, but it was definitely more in the community in the sense that as I got a little older and started going out with my friends rather than teachers, I did notice I was treated differently in shops. I would be followed very closely. And then a little older, sort of 16, 17, out with my friends, it would be, you know, why are you with that dirty packy, you know, that sort of thing. Um, I became very aware of it when I was in my later teens. And I used to come to London to stay with an uncle in half terms and what boarding schools you call exits. And my uncle would sit me down and talk to me about what it was like because he, like my father, was part of that windrush. They came to the UK and he used to tell me about being careful. It was a talk about being careful when you're in a shop, make sure you always have a receipt. I had that talk from my uncle rather than my parents. Wow. What do you think brought you from that place where, you know, you were being told to be careful and to watch out and sort of living, you know, under a cloud in a, in a different way from, let's face it, the majority of white people in the UK, to being the kind of person that was able to step up and do an incredible thing, which was to actually take the government to court? I think it's been years and years of campaigning because I've actually been a campaigner for 30 years. It started, I really found my voice with the birth of my eldest daughter, who's now 32. But at the time of her birth, she was starved of oxygen. And I was being told that she wouldn't have access to education to help. And I fought for her. And the fight was to try and get what's now called a statement and special needs provision for her in school. And that was over a period of four or five years. And uh, the passion when you fight for your own child, for your own cub, if you like, it's all consuming. And that was where I'd say I cut my teeth on campaigning and being an activist. And that was not going to the colour of my skin or what people were telling me, or it wasn't my place to question things. It was, you know, the system is such, you know, you can't go against the system, you can't go against the rules. I felt that was just wrong. And I wasn't just fighting for my daughter. I felt it was wrong that anybody, any child should have that access. And, And why should it just be the preserve of people with money if you could afford experts and consultants and then you would have your child look after you'd get special help? So it's that sense of injustice that drives me more than anything. I want to fast forward you now to October 2015. You were involved in the uh, referendum campaigning for Remain. Of course, we all know that in the end, the uh, result was in favour of leaving. The debate was described arguably too often as polarised. But what did you learn from it? Could you understand leave voters' reasons for indeed wanting to stand up themselves and make a change? Oh, yes. I mean, I I was quite shocked. The whole experience of being on that campaign from 2015 in that October all the way through to the following summer of the referendum vote itself 
was horrific to me in so many ways in that I was one of the few people on the Remain side. I'd sort of, the team thought I'd got the short straw and, and was sent to uh, places way outside London, many of the areas that eventually voted leave. So, you know, I would be, for example, in Minehead doing an event and being shouted at and screamed at. But I took the time to listen. I've always been somebody who will take the time to listen. And what I discovered was that there were legitimate reasons for people being angry and feeling that this is an action, voting to leave the EU was an action that would solve their problems. The issue wasn't with those individuals voting. It was the messages that they were being sold. So they were being overpromised, if you like, that leaving the EU would solve all their ills and all the political mistakes that had been made by repeated governments were going to be solved by this one vote. And that was what was so sad to me. And so educating the public as to what was actually going on, what this vote meant, was a very difficult thing to do. And I think it turned into a marketing exercise. It turned into a propagandizing of an issue that's very complex. And the, when you do that, the nuance is lost and people vote on the emotive rather than the thoughtfulness of an issue. And in terms of that, the Leave side won. They were better marketeers than we were. Yeah. Once, of course, we had the Leave result, how on earth did you become the sole claimant challenging the UK <laughs> government? It was an extraordinarily exposed position to find yourself in. It was, and I never envisaged being in that position. You know, I've always been very interested in our law, in the constitution. And so I'd been looking at how powers had been changing in, in Parliament, between Parliament and the executive for a good 10 years or so. I've been very involved with work that the Hansard Society had been doing. And, you know, for example, in 2015, 2016, secondary legislation was used about 96 times. So the shifting of, of power had already started before any word of a referendum in the EU, leaving the EU and Brexit started. So when the Prime Minister at the time, Mrs May, started talking about using the royal prerogative, I actually knew what it meant. And I was horrified because I thought, well, you can't bypass Parliament. So it was, it's being in the right place at the right time and having the knowledge, I think, that's very important. And then being in a situation where I was connected with lawyers who were also thinking the same because none of the legal team that I used for that case or that worked with me, I had ever worked with before. So we, it was a coming together of, of minds who were worried of that diminishing of our democracy and that central pillar of parliamentary sovereignty, which everyone was so passionate about. But I wasn't supposed to be the only claimant in my case. I was going to bring the case with a couple of other individuals, and I hoped in the future other people would join us. So I never envisaged I'd have been the only person. But in that febrile environment, when the abuse started and the violence and the threats, I don't blame the others for stepping back. But for my own case, all I can say is, for me, both cases were about saving our constitution and no amount of bullying or abuse or threats of violence were going to deter me. I was determined. Gina Miller, let's talk about 2019, when you took the government uh, on for a second time. Now, you and your team won a landmark Supreme Court case establishing that Boris Johnson's suspension of Parliament was unlawful to prorogue Parliament for that five-week period. What difference in practical terms do you think historians will conclude that that ruling made? I think both rulings actually were about the royal prerogative, but in the second case, it was about preserving our parliamentary sovereignty, and that the rule of law does have a place 
obviously some commentators were arguing that it was a political decision, but it was not a political decision in that courts are the final arbiters of power and where power lies between the executive and the parliament and if a government is overstepping their power and putting themselves above the law, which is what was found in this case. And, and the reason it was a unanimous judgment uh, ruling by the Supreme Court is because the government didn't actually put forward any real defence of why they were going to prorogue parliament for five weeks. So in effect, it wasn't a difficult case to win or for the ruling. It was exactly the right ruling. It was uncertain, oh, still is, unprecedented times, because it isn't usual for the judiciary to be involved in a case that is seen as being political. But it did preserve the rights of the law to hold politicians to account if they're putting themselves above the law. It's interesting, you've mentioned a couple of times there that this case was not political. You know, you were arguing the letter of the law. When you get something like Jeremy Wright, the Attorney General, accusing you and your legal team of attempting to subvert the will of the British people, it's really hard for it to be anything but political, isn't it? Yes, I mean, this is the thing that I always found. We worked so hard to ensure that we were sticking to the letter of the law. And if you read our pleadings, we never mentioned Brexit. It wasn't about telling politicians what to do. It was just to ensure the Parliament, that our representatives, that we pay with our tax dollar, a pound, that they have their say and they can represent us in debate. And so the outcome would not necessarily have been different. It was the process, the democratic process of getting there. And actually, the politicians and certain media completely politicized the cases. And the day that uh, I won the prorogation case in the Supreme Court, along with the Scottish team, because I, I wasn't just there on my own in that case, Everything was turned into a political debate. The government response, I felt, was absolutely shameful. And the debate that happened in Parliament the following day, well, when the politicians were called back, I mean, I watched it in utter disgust because I thought, you are behaving in a way that is diminishing what is so precious about our country, which is the stability of our rule of law and the independence of it. And you are the ones who are diminishing this. Do you actually understand the long-term damage? And I do think that they have damaged the reputation of the law. And that sits at the feet of the politicians and certain media. It also highlighted, didn't it, that Britain doesn't have a written constitution. And perhaps it also highlighted to some people how vulnerable our institutions can feel. Do you think that this has actually meant that we ought to have a rethink about our constitution when all of this is over? There is a looming constitutional commission, as we know, that the government are bringing in. And in principle, I don't think that's a bad thing. We have been having this conversation, academics, commentators, constitutional geeks, if you like, have been having this debate about a, a codified constitution for many, many years. So in principle, I don't think it's a bad thing, especially as we're going into a very different world where we seem to be operating in a political environment where the Nolan principles don't apply. Politicians are quite happy, it seems, to go behind certain laws acting with impunity. But I don't worry so much about us taking a look again at the constitution and, and asking those questions personally. I'm in favour of, of a partially codified constitution because I think things like our human rights should be codified. But I am worried about the language that the politicians, certain politicians are using about this constitutional commission in that is it about revenge rather than reform? Because if it is a result of my cases and saying that this is the reaction is to make a biddable judiciary, you know, they're talking about 
politicizing the appointment of judges and having it being not not merit based, but based on the fact that judges would have to go before a committee and be examined on their political views, a list given to the prime minister and he chooses that would hugely diminish the independence of our judiciary and damage it, in my view. We've and seen, also we've seen, the, we've seen what happened in the US. The American system oh, is, we've is seen it similar in the US. to that. Yeah, but, but this language is not out of place in, in Orban's Hungary, where they have he has uh, made a biddable judiciary. We've seen it in Brazil. We are seeing it around the world, the attack on the independence of the judiciary. And it is almost a playbook tactic by more authoritarian leaders and governments. But getting back to this... Um, looming constitutional commission in the UK. The other thing that I find very worrying in it is the fact, again, it looks as though it's aimed at me, is to say that uh, there is a, there's going to be a reduction to the access judicial review because judicial reviews are being used for political means. They are not. Do not forget that just three examples of the use of judicial review, you know, the Hillsborough families got their public inquiry because of judicial review. The young soldier who committed suicide, there was an investigation into her death and the misogynistic culture in the army because of judicial review. The woman who was denied housing because she was said to have made herself voluntarily homeless, she actually got access for her and her children and prove that she was a victim of domestic violence because of judicial review. Judicial reviews are an important part of our justice system. I want to talk to you as well about what are sometimes called Henry VIII powers. Uh, you've touched on it already, um, you know, the royal prerogative. Both Labour and Conservative governments have used these kind of powers in the past decades. Could you just describe briefly what they are and what's at stake if there isn't sufficient transparency and accountability? These powers, the royal power in particular, is a leftover from the times of Henry VIII, um, which is why they're called Henry VIII powers. But it's, it's the idea that a prime minister and a small number of his cabinet, the executive, can bypass parliament in particular circumstances. And traditionally, and you know, understandably, the royal prerogative can be used on the international plane in times of war or emergencies, And now we know that uh, Henry VIII powers are now been handed under emergency legislation, both in the Coronavirus Act. There are actually quite huge swathes of of powers that have been given under the auspices of an emergency. I personally think too many powers, but, you know, MPs have voted on it, so it's gone through. But also the Withdrawal Act itself also gives the government quite a lot of powers. So Henry VIII's royal prerogative powers means that that things don't have to be debated on the floor of the House and have to be done through primary legislation. It can be done almost at the will of the Prime Minister and the Executive. I'm interested in talking to you a little bit more about the coronavirus bill, because that emergency legislation has actually given a tremendous number of powers uh, to the Executive. Where are the areas that you are concerned about? Oh, gosh, <laughs> it's almost uh, so wide to, to explain. There are so many powers in there, just things like the ability to change the Mental Health Act that the government did. So, for example, now, instead of two doctors, one professional, one doctor can decide if somebody is to be detained, if they're under the Mental Health Act, if they are to be sectioned. That is an extraordinary power to give to one doctor to say, you know, where are the safeguards there? Um, and so that's very worrying. The idea of closing down our economy in the way they, in which 
they've done. In the past, you would have to have impact studies. Again, I understand why these things were done, but I do question the debate, the amount of debate that's happened. You know, under this, you could argue you, just recently, or we've seen the merging of the two departments, DFID and the Foreign Office, without debate, and it looks as though without the cabinet even knowing anything about it. I would argue, was this the right time to be doing that? But of course, they can do because of the powers that they have. And so I wonder how many other things would be sneaked in at this time when the government have powers to deal with one crisis, with the pandemic, but they are then using it to also bring in other changes that are more about their ideology rather than the crisis we're in. So those are my worries about the Coronavirus Act. But there are positives, I think, that can come out of it too. I'm interested to know what you think of the media's role. Do you think the media has been rigorous enough in holding politicians to account during the pandemic? I don't think they have. And I don't. And I, I also am quite critical about the media when it came all the way through for the referendum debate, actually, and the covering of Brexit, because certain poli- they they ran with language that was being used. Do I give some examples for my own case is that, uh, you know, being every so often or most of the media, it was foreign born or anti-Brexit campaigner. Yet my cases weren't about that. Yes, it's a nuance, but it was an important one. But also, you know, the enemies of the people when it came to the judges in that front page. The that media was the Daily Mail. Not there. That was the Daily Mail. And it's not the, the media are not there to um, become the mouthpiece for politicians. They are there to report the news. And that is a very important difference. And I think, you know, we need to be informed. Well, they would consider themselves to be campaigning newspapers, though. I mean, they're, they're, you know, that's that's not the BBC. They would consider themselves to be campaigning newspapers and therefore they consider that they are able to be a lot more partial. Yes, I, 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 and I understand that, that debate and I understand that, that point of view. But stating the fact and telling the truth is also important. You can still express a viewpoint with facts and with debate that has substance rather than running to derogatory statements or politicizing somebody's actions or somebody's view or picking on their ethnicity. These are things that you can still have a point of view without doing that. Gina Miller, you took on the government twice and won. Part of the fallout from that was being subjected to the most horrific abuse and extreme bullying, including rape and death threats. You've talked about having to change the whole way that you live your life. Can you just describe to us a little of what the impact that that has cumulatively on you and indeed your family? It's very difficult to almost remember what life was like before. And the ironies of being in lockdown, to me, it's, it's almost normal. We had to change everything. Because I wasn't deemed a public person in a role of a politician or somebody in public life, I wasn't able to access the levels of security that I, that I maybe would have had if I had been a public person. Yes, we were under some protection of the terrorist squad and, and other squads, but we had to pay and we were advised to bring full-time security. Everything changed about the way we lived our lives. We stopped going out. All the spontaneity went because every debate would be, should we go here? Who's going to be there? And it was just easier not to go. And I made a particular decision that I told my husband and my children that quite often I would go out on my own because if anything was to happen to me, I didn't want them to be there. I started writing letters to them in case something happened to me. To describe it, I was like an, a, an animal. My ears were always pricked up. I was so aware of everything, everyone around me. That was exhausting, still is exhausting, to have to always be on high alert for my safety. 
but also having to plan in a very practical way of if I'm not here, you know, my special needs daughter and I have two younger children. So I talked to them and those are very tough conversations, but I had them with my children and I still do about the fact that there is a price that I pay for raising my voice, but it's not something that I'm going to step away from because it's about making sure the world is a place where they can use their voices. So I do spend time talking to them about why I'm doing what I'm doing. I remind myself when I'm feeling low and I'm crying and I think, do I have the strength to carry on? Then I remember the letter that I got, which said, we know where your children go to school. We know your husband is Jewish. That means your children are mongrels and we're going to take them and kill them today. And I don't know, I didn't know if the people who wrote that letter, the person really did know where my children went to school. So that fear fuels me to carry on. Gina, a few days after you won your Brexit legal challenge, a man called Viscount Phillips offered via Facebook a bounty of £5,000 for, in his words, the first person to accidentally run over this bloody, troublesome, first-generation immigrant. I've actually found it quite hard to read those words. I, I don't know what it felt like for you to hear them. What was the fallout for him? I've never been on Facebook, so I wasn't aware that the Viscount had started this campaign or, or this group. And, you know, it had lots of people, hundreds and hundreds of people on this group. And one of the group felt guilty, so sent me the screenshot, and that's how we became aware of it. But I was incensed, <laughs> absolutely incensed. So I thought, we've got to do something about this. So try to get it taken down. It wasn't taken down. And I thought, how can I use this to change the fact that somebody can do this. And so I worked with the CPS and we got to court and I still think it's now the first case it set the precedent that somebody online and inciting racial and sexual violence, actually he was convicted of malicious communications. So, you know, we worked hard to try and get that. And, and I will always try and use the darkness to bring some light, but it shocked me. There were so many things that shocked me over the last few years. You know, to be told that um, the worst thing that ever happened in Britain was the slavery was gotten rid of and that I'm nothing more than an animal, that uh, I can't possibly be bright enough. There must be rich white men behind me telling me what to do and paying because I, I can't possibly be bright enough or it can't be my money. You know, there's so many stories about um, how many people have funded me. It's my money, not even my husband's money. This is my money that has funded this, especially the second case was solely my money. Um, the other, the first case, I had some crowdfunding and, and a few individuals who put in 20,000 or so. But in a whole scheme of things, that's not a huge amount. But the other thing as well, it was not my place. I should shut up and be quiet and that... Uh, Women of colour are only good for one thing. I mean, I didn't know. I didn't have any inkling that people felt that way and would then voice it. I So many things shocked me to the point where I became numb to it. I wanted to ask you about one particular piece of criticism you faced because on the BBC programme this week, Andrew Neil, the presenter and a colleague of mine, said to you, have you turned tinkering in the democratic process into a rich woman's hobby? Now, there's an awful lot to unpack there, but bluntly, mm. I would like to ask you if you would have been asked that if you had been a white man. Absolutely not. And what's even more shocking, the background to that interview, is that we had discussed it and they normally do a little sort of film of before you go on to the, to the show. 
And they had more or less scripted it for me because I was so busy doing everything else. And I sort of really sort of very quickly read it and it seemed fine. My team read it. And we had no, nobody, we were not prepared. I was not prepared. He, they had been, the whole thing had been so collegiate, the way it had been put together. So it was sort of almost setting me up for that question so that I couldn't answer it. So it was shocking, the lead up to that question being asked. But of course, there were so many things. I mean, I was told by several newspapers that um, I gave them everything they needed to make me the avatar of hate. I mean, that was actually told to me by an editor. Gina, you gave us everything. You're too well-spoken, you look a certain way, you speak a certain way, you've got money. I mean, we, we, just, we just rolled with it because you gave us everything. And I just thought, that is just an extraordinary way to have treated anybody. But uh, yes, it, it was a particular treatment. I wish what I'd said back to him, because I was in shock when he asked the question. You know, I wish what I had said to him, yes, it is my, if it's a hobby that I pursue with passion, then my passion will always be there for it. I wish I'd said that to him. It is extraordinary. There are so many things. But again, I have to say, this is not just in the last few years with Brexit and my constitutional cases. You know, with a lot of the campaigning I've done in the city for after the financial crisis, calling out the ripoffs and dubious behaviours, which I'm still fighting, I'm fighting for now um, the reform of wills that I'm fighting for at the moment and legislation there to be brought up to date rather than relying on a law that was written in 1837. The abuse I get is very much, a lot of it is still about my race and my gender. And the way I sort of think about that is that if you're attacking me and not what I'm saying, then what I'm saying is probably right. We know that there is a huge difference in the way that threats are given to women and men. And I know that there are quite a few women who choose not to speak out about the threats that they face. Do you understand that? Oh, I do. I, 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 it is a very difficult choice. Um, when There are so many things you have to consider every day. Because um, it's, uh, and, and I've done this when I speak out about domestic being a victim of domestic violence, because the worry is always that people will see you differently. And the fact that, you know, is it a weakness? There is this perception that if you talk, if you talk about the truth and you talk about what happens to you, then you're somehow politicizing it in some way or you're using it or you're making, trying to get people to feel sorry for you. There's so much stigma around truth. And my view is I will speak up because I want to let people know that they're not alone. Those who might be suffering, I just want to reach them. I don't really care what anybody else thinks. I want to speak out to reach those women who are also feeling that they are being violated and are suffering and are in pain. One of the things that I thought was really fascinating in your book is that you talked about how hard it is for women to find their voice. And that one of the reasons for that might be that you say that sexism is, is more nuanced than it used to be. Explain to me in what ways. It's interesting. So... If I think back to sort of when I came into the city and working in 1996, that's a long time ago now, and it was much more, you know, people said and did things, even in points of view of race, you know, we don't use the same language anymore because it's it's seen as, you know, you can't say that. You can't say that about somebody. You can't say that about somebody of colour. You can't say that of somebody who's black. You can't say that of somebody who's a woman. So our language has become the correct language, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the behaviour has. So it will still be things like, are you sure you should be wearing that trouser suit when you go on stage? You know, wouldn't it be better if you wore a dress? You know, those sorts of things. Or when you're a woman of colour, this thing, oh, 
but it'd be better if you sat there rather than here. So you're being put in your place. You know, why not sit there rather than here? So it's those nuances that happen. Or it'd be better if, you know, my I have a friend uh, who who is mixed race, so she has um, African hair. And she's so often been told to straighten her hair because that's better. Um, why is it better? Who Who's making those choices? So the nuances are still there. And there's a lot of work to do. And it's all relatively exhausting if you have to do it every day. It is exhausting. And that's the thing. You know, some nights I go to bed completely exhausted. Gina, this pandemic has made many people question the structure of our society. You know, we've seen these glaring inequalities. We've had government make the most extraordinary economic interventions. And of course, we've also got the huge impetus of the Black Lives Matter movement calling for cultural and societal shifts. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about responsible capitalism, what it means and whether you think that this is a tool that we could be using right now to rebuild that uh, that post-pandemic future that we're all looking towards. Responsible capitalism, again, is one of my campaigns. I've been talking about this since 96 and, and so have many other people, but we've all called it sort of slightly different things. Some people talked about a triple bottom line, um, responsible capitalism, conscious capitalism, whichever you wish. Like so many issues, I think this pandemic has done an extraordinary thing in that it's bringing to the fore or really shining a light on issues that many people have been talking about for many years, be it from the environment to education to housing, rough sleeping. And yes, capitalism, is it fit for purpose in our modern age? In that, uh, you know, the aggressive pursuit of profit this whole trickle-down economics has not worked. It has created huge um, gaps in our society, but it's also about accountability in that we have so much wealth sitting in such few hands, be it individual or corporate hands. How do we create more equality? Is it time for businesses to see themselves not just as a profit, but as I said, that triple bottom line where they are judged on their people, profit and planet initiatives and data, not just on the amount of money they're making. So I think all of these things are going to, I hope, be debates to be continue into the future. But what I'm hoping happens now is that these debates that have been going on for decades, we now see real strategy and action because it is time for the talking to stop and the action to start is where I think we are. As a campaigner, you must be aware, as, as I am thinking about this, that there is a danger that responsible capitalism, as you're talking about where big companies think about their, their people, about the environment of the planet, uh, as well as just the bottom line, gets swept aside when businesses are really struggling for their very survival. And some people will mm. be able to say, look, we just can't afford responsible capitalism right now. I mean, we saw after the financial crash in 2010 that the commitment for environmental projects took a tumble. I wonder if there is a danger that although we might want a new normal, we'll end up right back where we were before. Yes, I think it's a real possibility. I am quite sceptical about, you know, talking about people that I speak to who think that this new normal is being used or the new world we're going to emerge into is being used as also, almost as if it's it's a done and dusted and, you know, it's a given. And I, I think you have to be very, very cautious because this is going to take, a re the, the opportunity is there, but it's going to take real tenacity and courage to create change because we'll be fighting 
for survival. You know, this is not going to be an economic downturn or recession that I think personally is comparable. I know people are making the comparisons all the way back to the, you know, the credit crisis of the 1772 or the the Great Depression or OPEC. This is this is different than anything we have ever seen before. Every sector, every country, demand supply side, everything is being affected. So there is a danger because what happens is that quite often diversity programs go out of the window, equality programs go out of the window, initiatives that are seen as the soft things that businesses do are put to one side, while the hard reality of survival and economic survival and money basically is what people concentrate on. But I do think there's an opportunity to do both. I think there's an opportunity here for businesses to see themselves as building a future where they take their community and their workforce and all their stakeholders with them. But the reality is that businesses who've been operating, the big businesses who've been operating on, say, 30 40% profit margins may not ever get to that again. And I think that is only right. Bonuses may not go back to where they were before. That is only right. But the small businesses do need support. But the other thing in, from a responsible capitalist point of view is we do have to talk about the fact, I think, as a country, peculiarly to the UK, is that how do we, did we get into a situation where we stopped investing in infrastructure and uh, we stopped investing in skills? And what we did is we built a very fragile 80% service economy. What we're, what this, it's not a resilient economy that we have in our country based on 80% services as we go into the future. So these are fundamental questions we have about not just our corporate sector, but actually how our entire economic ecosystem works. Gina, you say that it's hard to complain about the world that we live in when you don't play an active part in shaping it. And, and you have for the last 30 years. The UK does seem to be more politically engaged at the moment, particularly our young people who are often apathetic politically seem extremely energised. What would your advice be to, to people who may feel that they really want to make this positive change that, that we've been talking about today, but they don't know how or, or they feel that they lack the means or the confidence? I think the young people are very fortunate to be a generation who have technology and uh, social media it gives them the ability to be a collective voice in a way we've never seen in the past. We, I know we, we are so quick to criticize all the negative things about technology and social media and platforms, online platforms, but it's also created an ability for a camaraderie, both nationally and internationally. And I think if you are too worried to do it in person and to step up, there is, there is a, a collective voice that gives you a bit more comfort to be part of that. But also you have to be careful because, of course, there'll be those who try and poison that language and, and politicize it in a negative way. So you still have to always be mindful of what you're reading. And is it fake news? Is it real news? But I think the ability to come together through social media is something that's very powerful for young activists. But I'd also say to them is don't think about activism and campaigning just about being in the front. There are so many other things you can do. You can be an enabler, a connector. You can be the person who does some of the research. You need all skills in campaigning. It is not just about the person who's at the front leading. Your campaigning has taken a huge personal toll on you and on your family. If you'd known when you set out that you would be living, as you said, a, a lockdown life, even when the rest of us are free to go out, and that you would have actually you know, had such a torrent of threats to your personal safety, 
Would you have still done it? Yes, I would have done. And I will carry on um, using my voice because my responsibility is to my children and to their friends. The future they will live in will be because of the actions me and, uh, and my husband and, and our peers take now. The future is shaped by what we do now. And how can I possibly deny them a future where I fought for it to be fair? Gina Miller, thank you very much indeed for talking to us today. Thank you, Andrea, for inviting me. It's been very kind of you and I hope your listeners enjoy. The Rathbones Look Forward series with Andrea Catherwood.